Hello, friends. It's time for that monthly update. Which is this. We're still working on it. That's right. The TV room is still putting together the pieces of the Patty Hearst SLA episodes for what will ultimately be our first official season of podcasts. On a personal sidebar, after 20 years of working at the same place, my job has finally been eliminated, and I am currently looking for a new line of work, which does eat into the time allocated for Symbionese liberation research a little bit. But this is the TV room, and where there's a will, there's a way. And we'll always have time for a show review. Today's episode is about a show that helped more than anything else to put Amazon Prime on the map as a major player in the video streaming service industry. This show was the most binged program in Amazon Prime history, and its lead actor won the 2017 Golden Globe for Best Performance by an Actor in a Television Series. That actor was Billy Bob Thornton, and we're talking, of course, about the legal thriller Goliath, Season 1. Today's subject, on this very special July 2018 monthly update edition of The TV Room. This is the Newmont Television Network. The question really is, which candidate and which party can meet the problems that the United States is going to face in the 60s? The warning that I've received that the brown acid is not specifically too good. Greetings to the people. This is Tanya. And I would never choose to live the rest of my life surrounded by pigs like this. James Garner. Please drive under 55. If we don't, there may not be enough gas for any of us. Oh, no, not you, kid. Look, I really can't talk to you, okay? This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? What is internet anyway? Allison, can you explain what internet is? Death to the fascist insect that preys upon the life of the people. When it comes to television, my time is usually spent watching the deep cable rerun channels that show nothing more current than Murder, She Wrote. That's the TV room way, and there's no shame in it. But on family visits to L.A., I get to see what the people with the premium channels are watching, which is how I was introduced to season one of Goliath, starring Billy Bob Thornton. I should mention here that Due to the strong language spoken by the characters on Goliath, this review will contain profanity when reproducing and discussing certain aspects of the show. This TV Room episode is, therefore, rated MA for mature audiences. The action begins on a fishing boat, in the darkness before dawn. Like a real L.A. morning, 
the pair of voices that greet the working day are Spanish-speaking voices. Things start out innocently enough. There's a little bit of ball breaking, a little bit of mota smoking, and just a wee bit of dynamite fishing. But then, these two run-of-the-mill pescadores end up seeing something they were never meant to see. The narrative flashes forward to two years later. It's a postcard beautiful day all up and down the Santa Monica coastline. Just south of the Santa Monica Pier and a couple of blocks inland, it's still a beautiful day, where on the second floor of a divey extended stay motel, a guy cracks open his door, steps into the sunshine, helps himself to cold french fries from a discarded food delivery container, grabs the sports section from the newspaper on his neighbor's doorstep, and walks down the motel balcony to greet the day. He's wearing what look to be off-white band slip-ons. By off, I mean filthy. But they could just as easily be knockoff espadrilles from a stall in the Venice boardwalk, just down the road. This is Billy McBride, played by none other than Billy Bob Thornton. Billy McBride is not just the kind of guy who still reads a newspaper in 2016. He's the kind of guy who steals that newspaper from his neighbor's doorstep. Though to be fair, he only grabs a sports section. He doesn't take more than he needs. As soon as Billy reaches the sidewalk, his foot lands in dog shit. His shoes looked smelly enough to begin with. They've now gotten a lot worse. And that brings up our first interesting sidebar. Namely, that dog shit on the sidewalk is something you really don't see anymore now that everybody follows their mutts around with plastic bags to pick up the droppings. In fact, I'd imagine that Santa Monica would have been one of the very first cities in the country to introduce an ordinance forcing dog owners to bust their pets' feces, and that it would be one of the cities with the fiercest penalties for non-compliance. It's the last place you'd expect to see unattended dog crap in the 2010s. Nevertheless, if there is going to be dog crap on the streets of Santa Monica, it's going to be right where Billy McBride's feet happen to be stepping. Luckily, he doesn't have far to tread. Right next door to the Ocean Lodge is the perfect complement to an extended stay motel, a dive bar called Shea J. These two structural icons stand like the king and queen on a mid-century Santa Monica chessboard that has otherwise been overtaken by decades of aggressive gentrification. The Ocean Lodge and Shea J aren't just props for the show. They're the last two real-life remnants of the legendary beach bum bohemia that once stretched all the way up the coast from La Jolla to Monterey Bay, and was peopled by the types of characters made famous in Steinbeck novels, but has now been reduced to the square footage containing Shea J and the Ocean Lodge Motel. And this brings us to our second sidebar. When you go far enough back in American literature, and it really isn't that far at all, you will find that the character and characters of California's coastline are described not in terms of millionaires and mansions, 
but in terms of beach bums and bungalows. That goes for everything from Steinbeck's Cannery Row to the Gidget novel that launched the movie franchise and the California beach craze in general. Even as the 1960s began, the beach was where you went to drop out of the rat race. But starting a generation or two ago, Southern California beach culture has been celebrated in film, television, music, and magazines, not as bohemian, but as being synonymous with winning, with a capital W. The beach has come to represent the most beautiful, most athletic, most popular people, the most winningest lifestyle, and the most desirable real estate. But even as the 1960s were beginning, the surfer was still seen as a form of bohemian, a beach bum, an outcast. That all changed with the 1957 publication of a book called Gidget, The Little Girl with Big Ideas. This novel spawned seven sequels, a movie franchise, a TV show, and a whole new chapter of pop culture. Soon after the Gidget movies came the Frankie and Annette movies, and the Beach Boys, and skateboarding, and everything else that followed. The original Gidget novels were written by a man named Frederick Koner and were based on the true-life exploits of his teenage daughter, Kathy. Frederick Koner was a screenwriter who fled Nazi Germany in the 30s for Hollywood. He marveled at how his American-born children adapted so easily to the customs and mannerisms of the 1950s American teenager, and particularly to how his daughter Kathy became infatuated with the surfer subculture at nearby Malibu Beach. The surfers were lovable dropouts who had their own codes of conduct, their own social networks, and spoke their own language. They had carved out their own little paradise cove right there on the still very underpopulated coastline of Malibu. And they made for wonderful story characters, not unlike the ones John Steinbeck based his books on back in the 1930s. Well, Gidget soon became a huge sensation, and the rest of the country, and the world, fell in love with the new Southern California beach subculture that led from Gidget to Baywatch. Of course, for the original surfers, this was awful news. Suddenly, their secret was out. Their beaches were being overrun. Their lifestyle was being co-opted. And they got priced out of their own habitat. Remember 20 or 30 years ago, when nobody wanted to live in downtown American cities? Well, that's how the beaches were, just a generation before that. Believe it or not, normal people didn't want to live too close to the beach. It was considered strange, and not very classy. Like living next to a carnival. It was a nice place to visit, but you didn't want to live there. That meant that the beaches belonged to the outcasts, the dropouts, the misfits, the beach bums. But since about 1970, coastal property has been the hottest property on the market. Beach towns replaced Beverly Hills in becoming synonymous with glamour and movie stars. And you can see the results everywhere. 
But certain enclaves of beach Bohemia still carried on. Malibu did get snapped up by millionaires, and they eventually worked their way south, down to Santa Monica. But Venice Beach continued to stay weird and freaky, and a little bit scary, for a long time. And basically, the southern part of Santa Monica has always been an extension of Venice. It was the kind of place where, even in the 70s and 80s, free spirits and hippies and people who wanted to drop out of the rat race, or just party hardy, could still somehow afford to live. Three's Company, the sitcom, was supposedly based on a cross-section of what that part of Santa Monica looked like back in the late 70s. And based on personal recollection, I believe it. It was a post-Woodstock, swinging singles kind of place where people lived together without any intention of getting married. Where young people went to find themselves while working menial part-time jobs, say, at a flower shop like Janet, or at a restaurant like Jack, and where gay people could live quasi-openly. Before the coastal property boom, Santa Monica had been known as a place where retirees like the Ropers went for peace and quiet. And even the Regal Beagle was said to be based on the authentic British pubs that were clustered in that area to serve the British expat community that, upon leaving England, preferred the temperate ocean breezes and fog of Santa Monica to the dry desert swelter of inland L.A. Now, every scene of a Three's Company episode was filmed on a studio lot. But the opening and closing credits of each season were shot on location in the same part of Santa Monica where Goliath takes place 40 years later. The footage of Jack on the bike path, of the gang down on their rendezvous among the rides and attractions of the Santa Monica Pier, and of the three roommates alone, basking in the glow of their special companionship on a sailboat just offshore, where Jack is able to show off his seamanship that he learned in the Navy. Every scene of Three's Company was filmed inside a studio. That much is true. But those establishing shots of Jack, Janet, Chrissy, and sometimes Terry, on a day at the beach in Santa Monica, is the real deal. That's the picture that everyone remembers, even today. Yes, I know what you're thinking. What about the year they filmed the intro at the LA Zoo, man? Well, if that isn't a textbook case of the exception proving the rule, then I don't know what is. A couple of years before the beaches were hers and hers and his, a different TV maverick was living in a trailer parked in a public lot next to the Pacific Coast Highway with the best view in Malibu. This, of course, was Jim Rockford, a man who embodied the fusion of one Southern California archetype, the beach bum, with another Southern California archetype, the hard-boiled detective. And speaking of beach bum detectives, although Chevy Chase is not Billy Bob Thornton, Irwin Fletch Fletcher is cut from the same cloth as Billy McBride. Rockford's trailer is gone now. 
and so is Fletch. And the beach bum culture that they symbolized, and that used to stretch in an unbroken line from Malibu to Marina del Rey, has been reduced to a postage stamp-sized parcel of land containing the Ocean Lodge and Shea J. And that is where our story takes us now. To recap, Billy McBride has started his day by ambling over from the Ocean Lodge to the dive bar next door, Shea J, nabbing somebody's sports section along the way, and managing to trudge through dog shit in his filthy beach bum tennis shoes. At his bar stool now, McBride is soon confronted by an intense, smoldering woman who bursts through the saloon door like a gunfighter in the Old West, confronting him in a showdown, practically telling him to draw. It seems that whenever Billy's at the Shea J, it's only a matter of time before he's confronted by a smoldering woman barely able to contain her rage over something Billy's done or forgotten to do. In this case, the woman happens to be Billy's daughter, and she has papers for him to sign, which he does, perfunctorily and with no great interest. Don't you even care what it's for, she asks, visibly unimpressed. He shrugs. It's a permission slip to go back east to look at colleges, she tells him. This takes him aback. What grade are you in, anyway? Eleventh. I'm in 11th grade, she blurts contemptuously. I knew that. He tries to cover his mistake. In a way, it's not hard to understand Billy Bob's position. When you live a bachelor's life and have friends with kids, it seems like they're riding bikes with training wheels one day and applying to colleges the next. And you end up asking yourself, with genuine surprise, where did that time go? The difference is, it's Billy's own daughter we're talking about here, not the child of some acquaintances he sees every couple of years. Nonetheless, now that Billy's been sufficiently updated on his daughter's status, he does have some fatherly advice about colleges to dispense. You're not going to Miami. You're not going to some fucking beach school, he insists. His reason being that if she goes to a beach school, she'll never study. The irony, of course, is that the man giving this advice is the town drunk in a beach town. We get the distinct impression that Billy is a guy who speaks from experience when he talks about opportunities blown by having fun instead of working. He may not place all the blame for his failures on the beach and the booze, but it certainly seems like the first stepping stone on the road to wasted potential. Billy McBride goes on to make a strong pitch for his daughter to attend the University of Indiana. Not for academic reasons, it turns out, but because Billy has a strong preoccupation with Hoosiers, the movie, which is where the term Goliath apparently comes from. From this encounter with Billy and his daughter at Shea J, the camera transitions to Billy behind the wheel of his Mustang, cruising in street traffic before hopping on the freeway. Like it does on the Rockford Files, a drive across town in L.A. seems to be a positive, gridlock-free experience in Goliath. Naturally, Billy's Mustang has one of those old-school California license plates. It's soot black with gold lettering. 
Nowadays, you can get those retro-style plates again on new cars from the dealers. But don't kid yourself. Billy McBride's is one of the rare, actual, original black and gold plates. It has to be. As he drives, there's a palpable sense of mission. We get the feeling that Billy McBride is on the clock now. We cut to him meeting with his client across a table in a crowded room. If Billy's daughter seemed disgusted by his detached indifference toward the details of her situation, well, so does his client. Her final quote is, I'm finished with you. I'm going to find someone who gives a shit. Enter Patty Solis Papasian, whose ears prick up when she sees Billy Bob getting fired and chases him out to his car like he's an ambulance so she can hand him her card and make her pitch. Patty is an up-and-coming attorney with an office above a tanning salon out in the valley. She's got a nice husky voice, a vaguely sneering grin, and the mouth of a crusty old sailor. She recognizes Billy because he is or was, a high-profile Los Angeles attorney whose name still graces the letterhead of one of the city's most prestigious law firms, even as he himself now lives in a motel and eats cold french fries off discarded plates. By way of introduction, Patty starts to explain that she has this neighbor, who has a very strong case against Billy's former law firm. But the case happens to be outside of her area of legal expertise, and right in his. Which means that there's an easy four-figure payoff for Billy, if he's interested in taking the case. But the only thing Billy's interested in is getting away from this chatterbox as quickly as possible, and getting back to his bar stool in Santa Monica. At last, he reaches his car only to find a parking ticket stuck to the windshield like a gleaming white glop of freshly dropped bird poop. Finally triggered, Billy turns to Patty and says, Listen, lady, I'm nervous enough already, and you're a fucking yapper. And I don't do good with yappers. But Patty Solis Papasian is nothing if not persistent. Her closing pitch is, You really don't want to try to fuck over your old law firm? He ignores her and starts up the car. Wow, she says, drawing out the disappointment as he throws the Mustang first into reverse and then into drive. I would, she chirps as he peels away. It's safe to say that this is not the last we'll see of Patty Solis Papasian. We cut from, don't you want to fuck over your old law firm? I know I would. To our first glimpse of the law firm itself. Cooperman McBride. It's the epitome of the powerful, malevolent corporation in the 21st century. It's like the Death Star with an HR department. The camera then introduces us to a couple of the ice queens who work inside this tower of power. And they are characters straight out of a Jackie Suzanne novel. For one thing, they all smoke, which is not something you see much anymore, except in period pieces of the Jackie Suzanne era, 
like Mad Men. Of course, this is the 2000s, so they have to go smoke outside. And because it's the 2000s, the firm's up-and-coming ruthless ingenue of a lawyer, a 20-something named Lucy Kittridge, whose naked ambition and youthfulness make the veteran lawyers feel threatened, has a special form of job security. On Mad Men, or in a Jackie Suzanne novel, Lucy's condition wouldn't mean job security. It would mean job insecurity. A terrible secret that, if ever discovered, would result in her summary dismissal from the firm and a you'll-never-work-in-this-town-again on her rap sheet. You see, Lucy Kittredge is a stutterer. And in that wide-eyed, innocent-sounding millennial speak that her generation uses, the young lawyer explains to her older rivals that this is an employment-at-will business, and you can fire me on a whim, with very few exceptions, stuttering being one of them. Since it's been categorized as a psych disorder, I'd actually have recourse under the Federal Disabilities Act, etc., etc. Even though we see no outward signs of this ambitious young lawyer being a stutterer, yet, on paper, she is. And that's where it counts, especially in a law firm. What Lucy is telling her superiors is that, ironically, even though she has a disorder that could easily torpedo her ambition to be the firm's next hotshot trial lawyer, this disorder also makes her fireproof. Because in the 21st century, canning someone for stuttering, even a trial lawyer, is the ultimate form of workplace discrimination. We hard cut once again from the gleaming steel and glass office tower of Cooperman McBride, soaring above the skies of LA, right back down into that last beatnik street curb on the west side. The one in front of Shea J, pockmarked with grit, stained with oil spots, and presumably streaked with dog shit. Billy is back in the bar now, laboring over a crossword puzzle that came, one presumes, from another section of borrowed newspaper. In the next scene, it's nighttime in Santa Monica. Billy is out in front of the Shay J this time, in the parking lot, commiserating with an old friend who happens to be, you guessed it, a dog. Probably the one who left his droppings on the sidewalk that morning. Billy McBride is busy devouring some freshly scavenged pizza and feeling very self-conscious about it. Scavengers don't like to be watched when they eat. It makes them feel vulnerable. As he guards his slice and chews it at the same time, Billy senses that even his canine companion is judging him, and he feels the need to verbally explain to the dog that, hey, I haven't eaten a thing all day, and I'm pretty damn hungry. Right at that moment, a woman approaches, cautiously and gives Billy McBride a furtive once-over from a safe distance, comparing the man she's looking at in front of her to a photo of a man on her smartphone. She gives him another once-over, this time establishing eye contact, throwing Billy a puzzled look as he's crouched on the pavement, devouring his slice and facing off with the alpha dog. Billy notices her noticing him, and breezily explains the situation by saying, Oh, 
They don't let you bring your own food in there. Pointing over his shoulder at the Shea J. She nods like she almost halfway believes him, and compares him again to the headshot of the hotshot lawyer on her phone screen. Are you Billy McBride? She finally asks. It turns out that this woman is the neighbor that Patty Solis Papazian was telling him about. The one with the ironclad case against his old law firm. So, although Patty herself struck out earlier that day with Billy, she sent the neighbor to come out and hit him up in person. They grab a booth inside the Shea J, and the woman begins to explain the situation. Her brother died in a boating incident two years earlier, she says. And as this woman painfully recounts the details of what she believes to be the murder of her beloved brother, and tries to screw up the courage to ask Billy McBride, attorney at law, if he would help with the case. McBride is still venting his disapproval at what a motor mouth that Patty Solis Papazian is. The woman appears to be drinking iced tea out of a tall soft drink glass, while Billy is knocking back some kind of brown liquor. She explains that although her brother's death has been ruled a suicide, she really thinks it's not, and she lays out a strong case as to why. She also takes us further into the backstory of Billy McBride, by way of saying that she googled him on the way over, and it seems that he used to be something of a big shot. Well, what did Google say became of me? It says you drank too much. You know, you look pretty good considering the drinking and the smoking. Just as she says this, he crouches down in the booth and, discreetly, lights up a cigarette, fumbling with his lighter just the way a Hollywood wino would. The woman gets a worried look and says, I don't think you're supposed to smoke in here. You're not, he assures her. Somehow, the act of openly sneaking a smoke inside the bar seems to get her motor running. Perhaps in today's highly charged PC culture, lighting up in a bar is more of a power move than a wino move. So, one more thing we learn about Billy McBride in this scene is that even with leftover pizza and who knows what else on his breath, he can still be charming to women. But in a slick callback that lets him know that she doesn't completely buy his act, she marvels aloud that he's able to smoke in here but not bring pizza in here. The rest of the evening plays out as you imagine it might, and certain strange occurrences that start happening right after this encounter let us, and Billy, know that something is indeed rotten in the county of Los Angeles. With McBride now convinced that there is a legitimate case against his old law firm, he begins assembling his dream team, or whack pack, to go into legal battle, starting with a high-end call girl he knows named Brittany Gold, who has a serious drug problem and excellent office management skills, and ending with, you guessed it, the irrepressible Patty Solis Papazian. In a surefire confirmation that Billy really is onto something, as soon as he starts putting his dream team together, he begins to notice that he's being followed. 
This is what often convinced a reluctant Jim Rockford that there was really a case, too. It's hard to watch Goliath and not think of the Rockford Files. And I know I'm not the only one saying that. It's not just the Billy McBride character, who is equal parts Jim Rockford, Bad Santa, and Coach Buttermaker from the Bad News Bears, a role immortalized by Walter Matthau in the 1976 original, and reprised by Billy Bob Thornton himself 30 years later. It's also the aesthetics of the show, and the location, and the plotline. Like Rockford, the curmudgeonly Billy McBride makes a big show of putting up a display of irritated refusal to the damsels in distress who track him down in his lair, seeking his help on a case. And like Rockford, after the initial display of exaggerated refusal, he quickly puts himself on the case, risking life and limb so that justice may prevail in at least one small corner of L.A. Like Coach Buttermaker, Billy drives around town in a beat-up convertible with a busted windshield and puts together his team from the kind of outsiders who don't get picked by other teams for one reason or another. Rockford's dream team whack pack consisted of Angel, Rocky, Dennis, and Beth Davenport. Billy's version is his own daughter, Denise, a bookish office assistant named Marva, the irrepressible Patty Solis Papasian, and the drug-addicted hooker with a heart of gold, whose name happens to be Brittany Gold. And by the way, Brittany Gold reminds me of what the character of Rita Kapkovic, played by Rita Moreno on The Rockford Files, could have been and would have been if The Rockford Files was rated MA for mature audiences and if Rita Moreno worked extremely blue. Like The Rockford Files, Goliath features a lot of L.A. driving, but not a lot of L.A. traffic. And, like the Rockford Files, they have to drive out to far-flung places like Reseda for leads. And they have to pose as people they're not in order to get people to talk. And they do get people to talk. Like Billy McBride, Jim Rockford was never shy about scrounging for his next meal especially in the early episodes, when they were still establishing Rockford's character. He would eat two-thirds of a fast-food burger on a stakeout, then carefully stash the last third in his suit pocket, and finish it later while surveilling someone else on the pier. All on camera. In Goliath, Billy McBride is often seen at the taco truck parked outside the Ocean Lodge Motel, where he lives. This is where he has FaceTime with the women in his life that doesn't involve screaming and confrontation. The taco truck is a place of repose and for contemplative meditation on the day's hard lessons. Rockford may not have had a taco truck parked outside his trailer at night, but he had Louie's Taco Shack at the end of the parking lot for breakfast. And he was often found on impromptu date nights at odd hours with the women in his life at taco stands all around L.A. The truck in front of Billy McBride's extended stay motel is an interesting prop to use in this situation because it could have one of two connotations, depending on how you see it. It's either a catering truck or a food truck. A catering truck is something that would pull up to blue-collar work sites at lunchtime and serve up hot food and cold drinks of not very good quality. 
was basically a 7-Eleven on wheels and was commonly referred to as a roach coach. But a food truck is something else entirely. A food truck is a mobile chef's kitchen with a Twitter following. In 2016 hipster Santa Monica, there's surely a thriving food truck scene happening on the ground. But maybe, maybe, in the old blue-collar heart of Santa Monica, where people still read newspapers and step in dog crap and day drink at dive bars, there might still be an old-school catering truck scene as well. This taco truck might very well be some kind of hipster Rorschach test. What do you see there? A food truck or a catering truck? We should mention that Billy McBride's nemesis in Goliath, his archfoe for season one, is Donald Cooperman, his former partner at the legal firm that still bears both their names, and the one who took control of the firm after Billy's demise. Donald Cooperman is played by William Hurt, like you've never seen him before, figuratively and literally. His face has been severely disfigured by burns, which have left him very sensitive to light and forced him to remain always in the dark, behind shuttered blinds. In appearance and demeanor, he's more sleestack than human, especially from his bad side. As head of an evil corporate law firm, it's hard not to see him as the proverbial reptilian, a lizard person in the jargon of today's fringe culture. Cooperman controls every aspect of the corporation's infrastructure, from a panel at his desk. He watches everything that goes on there, over a bank of surveillance cameras. It isn't just the camera monitors, either. All the functions of the building, the fire alarms, the sprinklers, the elevators, are remotely controlled by Cooperman. And in one memorable scene, they're all put together for diabolical use in delivering unsuspecting prey straight to the predator. After what Kathleen Turner did to him in Body Heat, it's nice to see Bill Hurt get his chance to be the ruthless puppet master for once. Unsurprisingly, classical music plays at all times inside the walls of the evil corporation. It's hard to say if the music is being added in post or if it's being piped into the building Big Brother style by DJ Reptilian himself, William Hurt, as you've never seen him before. I choose to believe it's the latter. But either way, it's exactly the kind of music that Hannibal Lecter would pair with Fava and Chianti. Hurt's character in particular, Donald Cooperman, may actually be more sleetstack than human. But pretty much all the featured male characters on the show are human train wrecks in one way or another. The women on Goliath season one don't necessarily have a lot of scruples, but they are savvy, and they do have their heads screwed on straight, while the men are by and large pariahs, unable to function in normal society. There's a masterful use of what's got to be drone photography to get some unique landscape shots of Los Angeles that just weren't possible in past decades of L.A. detective noir. Distances on the ground in L.A. normally seem so vast and unassailable, and the traffic so oppressive 
that journeying from one part of town to another can feel like the ordeal of going from one solar system to another. But the drone shows you just how easy-peasy it really is to go from windowsill to windowsill of the steel and glass offices of Cooperman McBride and the eight-figure mansions up in the hills to the low and boxy suites of the Ocean Lodge Motel, where the cinder block is painted festive colors because it's the public face of the building and meant to be seen. The drones also remind us that the surveillance isn't just taking place inside Cooperman McBride headquarters, but that there might be some sort of 21st century Gatsby-esque, all-seeing, unblinking eyeball watching over all that is happening in the L.A. basin down below. Elevation seems to be synonymous with status on this show. Cooperman McBride operates out of a soaring office tower with floor-to-ceiling windows. Billy McBride operates at street level, out of storage units and dive bars. The rich lawyers all seem to live in different iterations of the stallhouse up in the hills, with eight-figure views of the city below. Billy McBride lives low to the ground, in a budget motel, surrounded by asphalt parking lots. Parking lots. Parking lots. Parking lots. Maybe this is more true in a driving city like L.A., but America's dirty little secret is that so many of the seminal moments in our lives, in fact, play out in the parking lot. In car cultures like L.A., parking lots end up being the de facto third place, the name given to the public spaces outside of work and home where we tend to spend our leisure time. Not cafes, not street fairs, not parks, but parking lots. Every building has a parking lot in L.A., and everybody spends time in those parking lots sitting in their car with the windows rolled up. Or, if you're Patty Salit's Papasian, you get into all-out yelling matches right there on the asphalt. More on that shortly. American parking lots are where life happens while you're busy breaking other plans. A couple of Goliath's more memorable scenes happen to take place in the parking lots of Shea J and the Ocean Lodge Motel, respectively. In the first case, soon after realizing that he is being followed by somebody, Billy McBride comes out to his car in the Shea J lot to find it covered in fish guts. This may or may not be a callback to the series establishing scene out there on the dark side of the ocean with the pre-dawn fishing boat explosion. It's interesting that with Billy's top-down convertible, they chummed the outside of the car, but not the inside, which would have been much more problematic to clean up. Was this meant to serve as a measured threat to Billy McBride? A warning? Next time, the fish guts go on the upholstery. He hoses the blood and guts off right there in the parking lot, in the space nearest the curb, using a garden hose with one of those high-pressure gun attachments, so that the frothy cocktail of fish chum and hose water spreads over and across the sidewalk into the gutter of the street. The nozzle and hose must surely belong to Shea J or the Ocean Lodge Motel, 
And apparently, they're cool with Billy using it to wash the smelly fish guts off his car right there in their parking lot. What with him being such a great customer and all. In any other section of Santa Monica, you'd be breaking at least eight laws by hosing fish guts straight into the street. And there'd be an army of irate citizens calling the cops on you faster than if you crushed out a cigarette butt on the Santa Monica beach. But once again, normal laws don't apply to Billy McBride or to this one last block of hard-boiled Bay City, Santa Monica. More on that shortly. But first. Later in the series, there's a nicely choreographed scene, like water ballet, where two yellow Penske rental trucks pull into the blacktop parking lot of the Ocean Lodge Motel, clearly on a mission. Both trucks are stuffed to the gills with boxes of legal documents, and Billy McBride's whack pack has to unload them all with hand trucks. The normally industrious Patty Solis Papasian has already reached her melting point and become apoplectic with rage, screaming at Billy Bob, What in the shit is this? You said it would all be on a thumb drive. Billy has to explain that the judge in this case has decided at the last minute that they needed to use the actual paperwork instead of the thumb drive after all. It's a very dramatic and effective way of demonstrating the difference between what a gig of information looks like on a hard drive and what it looks like in printed form, with the implicit reminder that, until not very long ago at all, there was no such thing as a thumb drive. Pallets full of documents were normal courtroom currency, and moving these pallets around was an industry in itself that put people's kids through college. Raymond Chandler was a Midwestern boy with an alcoholic father and an Irish mother. He inherited his father's alcoholism and restless spirit and his mother's appreciation for literature and self-improvement. After trying his hand at a dozen or two occupations, including journalism, without much luck, Chandler took a correspondence course in bookkeeping and found employment as a bookkeeper for an oil company based in Los Angeles. Ten years later, he was a highly paid vice president in the company, until his alcoholism, absenteeism, promiscuity with female employees, and threatened suicides caused him to lose that job. This was during the height of the Great Depression. At age 44, with nothing else to turn to, Chandler taught himself to write pulp fiction by reading the Perry Mason stories of Earl Stanley Gardner. By the 1940s, Chandler's novels were being adapted into successful films, and he was one of the most sought-after writers in Hollywood. Chandler is often credited as the inventor of the hard-boiled detective novel, and of the hard-boiled detective. His protagonist, Philip Marlowe, was immortalized in film by Humphrey Bogart, but it was Marlowe's talent with the pen that was perhaps most enduring. His terse dialogue, femme fatales, and flourishing descriptions of the otherwise uninspiring, ignored, or belittled Los Angeles cityscape gave the sprawling desert backwater the kind of recognition it craved, but had yet to receive. Even though the gritty, black-and-white urban vignettes that Chandler created 
don't seem to match up well with the Technicolor beach towel LA that most of us are familiar with. His legacy endures in the form of the whimsical loner detective who eats off a hot plate, struggles to get the rent paid, but possesses an unassailable inner truth that can't be bought off. Jim Rockford was one such detective. Billy McBride is another. Chandler always referred to Los Angeles as Los Angeles in his writing, but for some reason, he always called Santa Monica Bay City. Nobody knows why. Maybe he thought Santa Monica was too pretty a name for the kind of city he observed. As we discussed earlier, coastal LA was a much different place before the 1950s. Venice was a failed turn-of-the-century attempt at a beach resort town modeled after Venice, Italy, with only the stagnant canals and some faux Italian Renaissance storefronts as a reminder. The area was muggy in summer, prone to flooding in winter, and separated from the rest of LA by sand dunes, bean fields, and oil wells. It became favored by beatniks and artists, but few others. Santa Monica had a pier and an amusement park along its beach. And together with Venice and its boardwalk, this area served as a sort of Coney Island, or Atlantic City, for Angelinos and servicemen on leave. Even as it started to become the capital of show business, Los Angeles was always a very Puritan city, with little in the way of organized crime or gambling or licentiousness. A notable exception were the gambling boats that were anchored a mile or two offshore in the Prohibition era, just outside the jurisdiction of the LAPD and the county sheriff. The best known of these floating pleasure palaces was probably the SS Rex, a ship that accommodated over 2,000 guests, had a crew of 350, served formal dinners, and had an onboard orchestra. The ship was open 24 hours a day and was never without a complement of at least a thousand guests at any time. They were ferried out to the wrecks by a shuttle boat that would pick them up and drop them off at the Santa Monica Pier. Beyond the beaches and boardwalks, Santa Monica and its adjacent South Bay cities were mostly bean fields or oil fields, bought, sold, and traded by gamblers, hustlers, and speculators. This kind of illicit activity is perhaps what gave Chandler the idea of calling the virtuous-sounding Santa Monica Bay City instead. In tribute to Chandler, a couple of early Rockford Files episodes are named after and take place in a fictional Bay City. Traces of this original anything-goes Bay City have dwindled down to all but nothing in the 2000s. Today, all the old dives and attractions have been replaced by multi-million dollar enterprises. Luxury hotels, five-star restaurants, the Rand Corporation, the Santa Monica Civic Center, and perhaps most appropriately of all, the Michael Milken Institute. Established by the convicted bond swindler and poster child of 1980s greed, 
as a very visible attempt at rebranding. And somehow, amidst all this development, a real-life dive bar and low-rise motel continue to exist right next to each other, side by side, all these decades later, stubbornly resisting the developer's wrecking ball. Like the king and queen on some plastic chessboard that you won down on the pier by tossing rings onto bottles. And now, frozen in time like a mid-century Mr. and Mrs. Roper, keeping a silent vigil over the remains of their Bay City. In fact, it was the spectacle of these two relics standing together side by side and imagining the kind of person who would live and work in one place and day drink in the bar next door that gave season one showrunner David Kelly the idea for the show in the first place. Or at least for the character of Billy McBride. That's the same David Kelly who created L.A. Law, Boston Legal, Ally McBeal, and a half dozen other hit shows. And who married Michelle Pfeiffer in her prime after taking her on a first date to Shay Jay in 1993. Speaking of writers and their muses, if L.A.'s dirty little secret is that its third place is not the coffee house and not the public park, but the parking lot, then there's a fourth place as well, where people spend even more time inside their cars, alone in a crowd. And that place is traffic. The thing about traffic is, it's totally egalitarian. It spares nobody in L.A. Not even TV writers, not even showrunners, with their own reserved spot in the studio lot. So, when confined by the forced captivity of gridlock on an otherwise perfect L.A. day, one looks out into the still life for inspiration, and one finds a phalanx of sedans up and down the freeway all in marching formation, stretching off into the horizon as far as the eye can see. Mid-size, neutral-colored sedans, captained by men and women of industry, power-suited, game-faced, battling the traffic. But then, into this sea of conformity, out of nowhere, bobbing and weaving like a child's balloon, merges one dinged-up Volkswagen Rabbit, primer red, with a slipping clutch, and a Cyndi Lauper song blasting from the radio, driven by a woman who's singing along to the song, popping gum, fixing her hair in the mirror, and rocking out, all at the same time. With her bleached bangs, her cheap sunglasses, and her neon lipstick, she's some kind of valley girl. But she's a San Gabriel valley girl, or wherever Glendale is. She is, of course, the character of Patty Solis Papasian, who, in addition to being a lawyer working out of an office above a tanning salon in a strip mall along the freeway, also sells a little valley real estate on the side. And probably has another side business, getting up early on weekends and driving out to Hawthorne to bid on abandoned storage units. Sold to the lady in cheap sunglasses. We could also picture her driving briefly for Uber, and that not ending well. People like her are the local heroes to cloistered L.A. screenwriters, 
stuck in traffic and in their careers. People like Patty, who merge into traffic with indomitable pluck, who seize the rush hour, bad clutch and all. Their joie de vivre in marked contrast to the jaded sons, daughters, and spouses of the West Side. With their tall jeans, their therapists, their Pilates, and their college connections. For whom, just getting out of bed every day, it's always an existential crisis. She is the everywoman, the muse, the working-class Shiro, the day's first shot of espresso, blasting away the writer's block and getting the typewriter moving. And perhaps this is the place to end our narrative. Out there on the open road, in the driver's seat, eyes forward, mind set firmly on the destination, and the foot set firmly on the brake, going nowhere fast. It took a long time to get there, and there were numerous speed bumps along the way, but season two of Goliath finally got here. And perhaps we'll be back here someday to discuss it. Feel free to subscribe to the TV room to get this and all future episodes as soon as they become available. Thank you for listening. The TV Room is a production of Sorif TV. You can find us online at sorif.tv, where you'll find links to this and every podcast episode, along with show notes and transcripts, as well as long-form articles about the Rockford Files, about L.A.'s last beach town, and so much more. That's www.sorif.tv. S is in saxophone, O-R-E, F is in francophone. TV. Aren't you going too fast? No, it's not the speed really so much. Uh, I just wish I hadn't drunk all that cough syrup this oh, morning, you know? Oh.